Uh, We're reading Psalm 20 today, the whole thing. It's on page 546 of your Bibles. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now, this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the King. Answer us when we call. Oh, good morning. My name's Cam Maxwell. I'm on the staff team here, and uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, it'd be great to say hi over coffee a bit later on. Um, the psalm we just read, very short, punchy psalm, um, hopefully you picked up a great tone of optimism in it. You know, who needs horses or chariots in your army if you have God on your side, right? Um, I find this kind of confidence in victory really quite attractive. Um, and I wonder though, like what was your first reaction to Psalm 20? It was, it was very short, you didn't have a lot of time to think through it perhaps, but uh, what's your first reaction? Uh, for those of us who are optimists, or uh, perhaps those who just find life pretty straightforward, um, Psalm 20 might seem to confirm uh, what you already know. Everything will be fine, uh, it'll work out in the end, just pray, trust God, it'll be fine. Uh, for those in the room who uh, call ourselves realists, or as the optimists would call you, pessimists, um, uh, this kind of confidence might cut against the grain a little bit. Uh, you think, well, it's, of course it's good to be confident, but there are no sure things in life, and uh, this kind of overconfidence in Psalm 20, it, it kind of just sounds a bit foolish, um, kind, of, the kind of thing an optimist might say. Especially for those of us who are going through a, a tough time, uh, perhaps a very tough time for whatever reason, uh, I think a psalm like that, that sort of seems to paint a picture of certain victory, uh, it, it can come across at first a bit jarring, I think. Uh, sometimes our struggles or our battles, they're not going in the direction we hope for. Victory doesn't seem around the corner. And it's not through lack of trust in God or through uh, prayer, but just victory remains elusive in our struggles. So take a moment. Uh, let me ask, what is your biggest battle right now? What are you struggling with? Don't have to say it out loud, but just try and uh, think of one thing. For some here, the, the battles we face just, just keep rolling on. It might be health, it might be a relational conflict, just trying to keep life together. Um, perhaps it's in the fight against sin, or the struggle just to keep sharing the good news with those around us, those we love. Those sort of battles, those struggles are very real. And so a first reaction to this psalm might well be to be dismissive or just a bit suspicious. I mean, is this just wishful thinking? Uh, Verse 4 there, it says, uh, May God give you the desire of your heart. Um, This made me a bit suspicious of this psalm at first. Uh, It seems to be treating God as some kind of genie in the bottle, doesn't it? May God just give you whatever you want, you know, pop him out of the bottle if someone forgets to bring the horses along to battle. Uh, like a number of the Psalms, Psalm 20 I found a little bit hard to connect with personally uh, at first. But like all of God's words, uh, taking some time to, uh, to slow down, take some care to think about what's going on, it's very valuable. 
And I hope as we spend some time now looking at Psalm 20 together, I hope we will all have a renewed confidence in uh, what God plans for his people. Um, Before we have a careful look at the psalm, though, I I need to complain a little bit. Um, uh, The English language, uh, it's not great. Um, Today I'm going to keep my complaints pretty narrow, just to one thing. I'll save my monologue about the letter K and how useless that is to another time. Uh, My complaint today is about the word you. Um, I asked earlier, I asked you all the question, what are you battling with at the moment? Most of us, when I asked that question, thought about your battle as an individual, didn't you? And fair enough, that's what I was asking. But the English language is completely unable to distinguish between you, the individual, and you, the group. Um, The same word, but very different people are involved. I could have equally been asking... What are you, the whole church, battling with, the corporate you? What's your battle together at the moment? Um, It's a problem that only English seems to have. You could be the individual or it could be the group. Now, thankfully, uh, the Americans have come up with a solution for this. They've invented a new word. I hope I'll pronounce this word correctly. Uh, So I'll use it in a sentence. How are y'all going as the collective you? Um, I think I'd prefer, though, the Australian solution. I, I like this more. Um, I'll use this in a sentence as well. How are you guys going? uh, I think that sort of solves the problem. Okay, complaint over for now. It's just that being an English speaker puts us as a handicap uh, as we read Psalm 20. Uh, In this psalm, the pronouns really help us understand what's going on. So, you know, pronouns, you, me, we, our, I, them. Um, We need to define our pronouns, uh, which I'm sure there's a joke there somewhere, but I'll, I'll move on for today. Now, bear with me, I know grammar is not that exciting, it's not my, uh, yeah, I don't gravitate there naturally myself, uh, but God's Word is exciting, and grammar helps us understand what He's saying and what He really means. Now, you really will need to have your Bibles open for this bit, because uh, we'll jump around pretty quickly through the psalm. It's on page 546, if you've closed it. Uh, first up, what I want to do is try and work out who is doing the speaking in verses 1 to 5. Who's speaking? Well, in verses 1 to 5... Uh, the clue is in verse 5. We read, May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners. That is, in verses 1 to 5, we have a group speaking. It's a group. Then verse 6, we have an individual voice piping up. They begin, Now this I know. Verse 7, it's back to the group speaking. We trust in the name of the Lord. So every verse, apart from verse 6, is the voice of a congregation or an assembly of people. Here's the critical question, who are they speaking to? Who are they speaking to? If you look down at the end, verse 9, that's that's easy in that verse, they're speaking to God. Uh, But that's the only verse they're doing that. A direct prayer to God is only in verse 9. In verses 1 to 5, they are speaking to you. Here's the problem is that you guys, as you read this, is it you, the individual reader, or is it you, an individual person, someone else altogether? Well, it's not you, the reader, and it's actually a singular, an individual person being addressed. This ancient chorus of people are addressing one particular person. Who is it? The you in these verses, uh, well, if you're with me so far, here's where we get to the good part. Uh, they're speaking to or about their king. The clue is actually before verse 1, 
this is a psalm of David, the, the great king. Uh, so perhaps they're talking to the king. And yes, sure enough, as you jump to verse 6 now, like I said, jumping all over the place, verse 6, this is the one verse where an individual speaks, and they say, this I know, the Lord does give victory to his anointed. Uh, literally, the Lord gives victory to his Messiah, his anointed king. And again, this is confirmed, verse 9, as the group prays to God, may God give victory to the king. They're talking to the king as they ask for these things in verses 1 to 5. So now we've got our pronouns all sorted out, I hope. Uh, it's a bit of a, a quick walkthrough. I think what we see now is a pretty clear scene that Psalm 20 paints for us. Psalm 20 is a battle song. Uh, the king seems to be about to lead his troops into battle, and before they go out to war, the army, or perhaps the whole nation, kind of gather to sing. May God protect and deliver and send help to you, our king. May God remember your sacrifices, our king, and so he, may he make your plans succeed. The people ask for God's absolute blessing on the king in these verses. And like I said, that lone voice responds in verse 6. Uh, maybe this one voice is the king himself. Maybe it's a prophet or a priest. But that voice promises God's people, yes, these things you, you want to happen, they will happen. God will make his king victorious. God's powerful right hand will be doing the fighting for him uh, in this battle. So the confidence we see in this psalm is not first about God giving me or, or you, the individual, uh, personal victory in our battles. That's not first what's going on here. First, it's a psalm of confidence that the king will be victorious. The army might look out guns, you know, someone forgot to bring the horses and chariots with them. That's okay. This army has God, they have God's king and it'll be Okay. So just for a moment, I don't know if you've ever sort of uh, had these kind of historical imagination times, but imagine you're in that ancient army uh, on the day of battle. You've got your best battle sandals strapped on your feet. Uh, you've got your favourite shield, perhaps wearing your, I don't know, your dad's old armour. I don't know how they do these things. You're ready to go, but it's tense, isn't it? You sing a great song, but it, it's tense. This could be your last day. The enemy are big, they're strong, they have lots of horses and chariots. But as you gather together with your comrades, or your, uh, those alongside you, you sing Psalm 20 together, you're praying for victory of the king. It's a pretty important moment, isn't it, to just put yourself in that. I mean, and it makes sense as well when you think about it, praying for the king, not just for the army. Uh, the victory of the army does depend entirely on the king. The decisions he makes the way he fights, the way he leads. And it's true all the time that as goes the king, so go his people. If he wins the victory, everyone wins the victory. You sing the song and then off you go into battle. Now, don't spend all day uh, daydreaming. Let's uh, sort of move out of that ancient battle scene a little bit. Uh, we do learn there a little bit about how to place trust in God. Uh, but I guess my question as I got to this part of the psalm is thinking, well, what does this have to say to us? What does this have to say to you guys uh, who aren't in an ancient army? Well, here's a thought I had. Uh, the Bible speaks of the church being at war. Uh, it does that quite a, a few times in different ways. 
Now, I hope it will go without saying, it's not a literal war. If you're, if you're just visiting today, don't worry, it's not a call to violence coming or anything like that. It's not a literal battle. Uh, and I, I missed Matt's uh, sermon last week on politics, but I'm confident what Matt would have said is that it's not a case of the church fighting against the state. Uh, the, ch- the battle of the church is not political. It's not against our government. Uh, if you've got your leaflet there, you'll see if you're taking notes, I've used uh, some old-fashioned descriptions of the church in your handout. The church militant and the church triumphant, old ways of, of describing uh, two different elements of the church. The church triumphant has been used to describe uh, all those who through the centuries have run the good race, they've fought the good fight and they've been gathered to Christ's side, triumphant in death. The church triumphant, as you read the Bible, it's kind of the picture of the millions and millions from around the world who stand around the throne in paradise already. That's the church triumphant, the church militant, that's the rest of us. That's those of us who are in the, in the world, we're alive, we're in the phrase of battle, is the kind of language Scripture uses. Now, what kind of battle is this? Um, I've already given us a bit of a lesson on grammar, so I might as well go full nerd at this point and uh, quote from the liturgy of the Anglican prayer book. Uh, These are some words, though, that uh, most of us will recognize because we use them here. Um, We use these words and we say this as someone has just been baptized. I think these will come up on the screen behind me. After someone's baptized, we say to them, fight bravely under a Christ banner against sin, the world, and the devil, and continue as Christ's faithful soldier and servant to your life's end. Uh, it's clearly battle language. As someone uh, yeah, is declared a member of the church, they're declared a soldier. We are the church militants. I don't know if you've ever thought about yourself uh, as, a, as a soldier or as a church, as a militant organisation. It's probably not that helpful in our, in our advertising, I imagine. But I think it's helpful for us. It reminds us we are not there yet. We're not triumphant yet. That still awaits us. Uh, we're in the middle of a battle and that tells us we're not entirely safe, doesn't it? Uh, it's not just Anglicans who think this. Uh, Ephesians 6, we looked at it, the book of Ephesians just a few weeks ago. Uh, at the end of Ephesians, we saw this uh, stark phrase from the Apostle Paul. Again, just be on the screen behind me. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand." As you read about this kind of battle, here's the concerning thing, I think. We can't even see the enemy. They don't have bodies, and it seems to suit them to remain entirely hidden. In fact, I reckon, uh, most of the time, we don't even think there is an enemy. We forget we're in a battle. I think that makes us quite vulnerable in those moments, thinking it's peacetime uh, when danger is lurking. Now, this might seem a bit of an odd direction to take us, uh, you know, looking at Psalm 20, and here we, here we go. For a few minutes, I want to talk about uh, the kind of battle we're in and who it is we're up against. Um, 
we don't talk a lot about the devil in our church, and I think that's probably appropriate. It would be a shame to give the devil too much credit, I think. And the first thing to say, I think, is always that his power is very limited. The Bible doesn't paint a picture of God and Satan in some kind of cosmic, evenly balanced kind of battle. It's completely the opposite. It's one-sided. God is always completely in control. We see time and again, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Now, that might raise all sorts of questions... But ultimately we see, Jesus has defeated Satan on the cross. And yet, it would be foolish for us to think that a defeated Satan is not a dangerous Satan. It's quite the opposite. Uh, We find in 1 Peter this quite sober warning, and it's up on the screen behind me. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. It's true that Satan is on a leash, uh, and yet a lion on a leash is still a lion. It's still not safe. Now, I don't know about you, I I don't really like thinking too much about what Satan's up to, you know. um, I don't like thinking about it, really. But at the end of the day, what kind of soldier would ignore their enemy entirely? And after all, when you think about it, Satan has had a couple thousand years now working on his craft... It's fair to say he's probably pretty good at what he does. So we should be aware of his schemes. What's he up to? What do we need to know about Satan uh, as we oppose him? Now, there's all kinds of directions we could take this. Um, The Bible has lots to say about Satan. He's the father of lies. He frustrates the work of mission. He accuses Christians before God that we don't deserve salvation. He, He would be right. He blinds people to the truth of who Jesus is. It's all pretty lethal stuff. And as we covered in our series in Ephesians, we are well equipped. We don't have to fear Satan. God gives us all the tools we need. We can withstand his attacks if we are soldiers of Jesus. And I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on Ephesians 6. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Matt's sermon. It's online if you want to think more about the spiritual battle we're up against. Uh, Ephesians 6, I was the last sermon in that series. Today, though, rather than cover that same ground, I thought I'd pick up uh, what Satan is doing in our battle, or at least trying to do. And I think the clearest place to take us to on this is 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, This will give us a pretty clear picture of what Satan wants. Again, this will be on the screen. Paul writes to the Corinthians, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Satan uses cunning, not usually direct assault, and he's seeking to influence our thinking, leading our minds astray, leading our minds astray from pure and sincere devotion to Christ. That seems to be his end game, to disrupt our devotion to Christ. And that's our whole goal, isn't it? If we're followers of Jesus, isn't that what we want? A, A pure and wholehearted devotion to Jesus? That's what Satan's trying to attack. I think what this means is that we won't see Satan's best work coming our way normally. It probably won't look like satanic activity you see on the movies. It can be as simple but entirely destructive as uh, division in a church over trivial things, distracting our corporate devotion. 
at the individual level, it could be in the many ways we find ourselves just convincing ourselves that just a little bit of forbidden fruit is not a bad thing. And so how is your, the individual you, how is your sincere and pure devotion to Jesus going? And how is it most challenged? What do you find gets in the way of your devotion to Jesus? Now, your answer to that at the moment might be, well, not much I can think of. That would be great. That's wonderful. Uh, praise God for that. As long as we're aware that at, at, for all of us at some time, we will find this great struggle. Um, I think some of the more likely challenges for us and uh, challenges to our wholehearted devotion to Jesus, that we subtle ones in our setting, I think we'll find it most often in the idea that we, we sometimes believe that we can have everything this world offers, we can have it all and also be fully devoted to Jesus. We can have the wealth and the comfort, uh, the financial security, the same sort of things all our friends have. We can have the same lifestyle, the same opportunities for our kids and still be fully devoted to Jesus. That is, we might think sometimes that wholehearted devotion to Jesus won't cost us too much. We might have read the bit uh, where Jesus says, no one can have two masters, no one can serve God and money. Uh, We think, ah, he's talking about, you guys can't serve God and money, but it's me, I can do it. At least for me, that's the struggle, I think. That's the struggle for me and my devotion. Uh, The idea is recurring, it takes different forms and keeps popping up and it's always tempting to think, yeah, I can have all this world offers and follow Jesus. It always seems compelling, it always seems true to start off with, but it's always, always has a lie packed in it. Now, one of the greatest books, uh, if you want to think about these things more and about your own devotion and uh, how this sort of plays out in our battle, one of the greatest books on this topic is The Screwtape Letters uh, by C.S. Lewis, a great Christian author. It's an absolute classic. I'd say it's a must-read. I've only got a few books on my must-read list. That's one of them. I'm due to read it again. Um, the Screwtape Letters is a fictional account uh, of two demons kind of corresponding. Uh, and it's, I guess, the brilliant way that C.S. Lewis explores how Satan is seeking to lead the Christian heart and mind away from those, uh, away from wholehearted devotion to Jesus. It's a helpful book and it's, it's got some really fun parts to it as well. I just want to point out a couple of insights from this book. Uh, Screwtape, the demon, he writes... It is funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Now, if that's their game, that must be easy as pie for them in in our world. It's high-paced, it's digital, we're always getting distracted by notifications, we have entertainment on tap, there are distractions aplenty. Unless we're on our guard, unless we're vigilant we will get distracted from things that, uh, the things of the kingdom of God. Perhaps we even forget that we're in a battle for a while. We are up against a dangerous enemy, aren't we? He's one that knows how easily we are drawn, not to battle, no one really wants to go to battle, right? He knows how easily we are drawn to comfort, to security, to the easy life. Perhaps seeking the easiest way possible to follow Jesus. I take this pearl, this uh, very confronting pearl, from the demon screw tape. He says, A moderated religion is as good for us demons as no religion at all, and more amusing. That is, what they're trying to do is produce a lukewarm approach 
in following Jesus. That's their goal and their entertainment. Perhaps the most confronting quote of all, and uh, it's quite haunting, I think, these words from Screwtape. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. These are really hard things, aren't they? Hard things to kind of grapple with and to, uh, to be aware of in our own life. Uh, but it is a battle. We should expect it to be hard. And we do need to know what we're up against. I realise this will all feel like a huge sidetrack from, side 20, uh, from Psalm 20, and in some ways it is. But I think it helps us see why Psalm 20 matters for us. We are the church militant. We are not yet the church triumphant. Psalm 20 takes place before the battle. And uh, verses 7 and 8, if you have it there, it actually doesn't seem that likely uh, that God's people will win. They don't have the horses, they don't have the chariots. In the world's eyes, in the same way the church, in wholehearted devotion to Jesus, we don't look like the winners. We don't look triumphant. We don't have all the toys. And that's because we still await our final victory. We still have a battle to go through, but we go into this battle knowing full well that our King, Jesus, He has already won the day for us. Psalm 20 points us to the great victory of Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, on the cross. And Psalm 20 reminds us that like the Israelites, when the King has victory, so do His people. As goes the King, so go His people. And so Christ's victory gives us absolute confidence in our battle to fight bravely. Hebrews 2 has this, I think, wonderful explanation of Jesus' victory, and I hope this is a great encouragement for all of us. Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power over death, that is the devil, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's an extraordinary victory, isn't it? In his death, Jesus defeats the power of death. He defeats the devil. And in his resurrection, he proves that his victory has been successful. Which gives us great encouragement. We have nothing to fear if our trust is in Jesus. We get to live in the light of his victory, empowered by it, encouraged by it. I should say at this point, if you're here today sort of checking these things out, maybe investigating Christian belief, uh, welcome. It's really great to have you with us. I realise this might be all a bit odd, this talk of the devil. Um, as I said earlier, we don't really talk about him a lot. You've come on an unusual week in that regard. So I suppose today, the, the most important thing I'd like you to hear, I think it's in that verse in Hebrews, uh, explaining why, what's so important about Jesus. His victory can free us from the fear of death. I think that makes the Christian life the truly free life. And I hope you're able to stick around with us as a church and explore these things with us further because it's a really, really good promise. The story of Jesus' life, death and resurrection is the story of this Messiah's victory. Jesus' story begins with him entering into the battle. He takes on flesh. He wins his first major battle against Satan in the wilderness. He resists temptation. Satan offered him the easy way. 
He could have all the splendors and delights of the world without going to the cross. Uh, But Jesus knew the battle and he went faithfully to the cross and he won that battle for us all. On the cross, he defeated death. He pays the price for our sin. He satisfies God's wrath at our sin. So now when Satan, uh, the accuser, when he stands before God and he accuses us of our sin, those accusations don't stick anymore. The sin's been dealt with. Those accusations have no power. Jesus even won for us the victory over the power of sin, which means his people, we we are no longer slaves to sin. We're free to fight against it. My final quote for today is from the great reformer Martin Luther, and he wrote this about Christ's great victory. Again, it should be on the screen. Christ won a victory over the law, sin, our flesh, the world, the devil, death, hell, and all its evils. And this victory of his, he has given to us. Even though these tyrants, our enemies, accuse us and terrify us, they cannot drive us into despair or condemn us. For Christ, whom God the Father raised from the dead, is victor over them, and he is our righteousness. It's good, isn't it? I asked at the beginning um, about the things that we are all individually struggling with. And as I finish, I thought it's worth returning to that question, but this time in light of the victory Christ has won on the cross. That kind of victory doesn't fix all of our problems in the here and now. It doesn't diminish our hardships in any way. But I hope being reminded of Christ's victory uh, helps give our struggles the right context, as well as the encouragement to keep going, to keep persevering. If our struggle is with guilt or a past that we can't escape, Christ's victory frees us from our past failures and he frees us to be dearly loved children of God, completely forgiven. If our struggle is to uh, prove our value and our worth to others, Well, Christ's victory proves God accepts and approves us. He's freed us from the burden of needing to perform or succeed in the way the world would seek us to, we want us to. If our struggle is with the fear or anxiety of the future, uh, the worry about the what-ifs, Christ's victory assures us God is completely in control of our future. The victory of his people is eternally secure. And if our struggle is with a divided heart, uh, a heart that longs for the comfort and security that this world offers, Christ's victory reminds us of the majesty and the power of our King, of how worthy He is of our devotion. I think this spurs us on and assures us that we get to share in the wealth and the riches of His kingdom forever. So would you join me in prayer? King Jesus, what a relief it is uh, to know that in this battle you have already won the great victory. Please help us fight bravely under your banner. We thank you for the way of the cross that you chose, putting aside the things of this world. And so we ask that you would give us the strength to do the same. Help us be wise to the schemes of the devil. And please give us an increasingly undivided heart. Please help us stand firm in our battle until the day we see you. Amen.